This is Other Voices. We're listening to varied views from local people who might otherwise not be heard. I'm Melissa Hale Spencer, editor of the Altamont Enterprise, which focuses on Albany County, New York. You can reach me at mhs at altamontenterprise.com. I'm talking to Cheryl Valley. She believes in the kindness of volunteers and the power of information to transform lives. Valley is the director of the Center for Community Justice based in Schenectady, which has just launched a new Legal Hand call-in program. It's an access to justice initiative, free, for residents of Albany and Schenectady counties. like to start out just by hearing a little about what is this new project? Well, this new project uh, was not initially an answer to the pandemic. Um, However, we have found that it has become an answer to the pandemic for many citizens. Um, This is a virtual call-in center called the Legal Hand Call-In Center. And the process is, is that trained volunteers who use an online comprehensive database of laws and community resources provide information and assistance to address the issues of those seeking assistance who are called visitors. Um, And the volunteers are provided with fairly extensive training, and I'll get into that later, uh, a laptop and headset, and they work from the comfort of their home. Could be the kitchen table, could be the living room couch. And the information and assistance provided can take many forms, um, including help with navigating a variety of systems, such as the social services systems, uh, providing information about various public benefits. Uh, making advocacy calls, assistance in completing online forms and drafting letters. So really, we're talking about issues that are uh, near and dear to folks that they need help with. Um, It could be employment issues, uh, could be the ones that I just mentioned, public benefits, uh, family law. Um, We do not um, provide any assistance with regard to divorce um, or criminal matters. So those are the, the two areas that we do not um, assist with. These are really civil matters. Yes, I can imagine there are a lot of people that um, don't either have the money or the moxie <laughs> to sign up a lawyer and could use um, this kind of help. What The areas you're covering are Schenectady and Albany counties, is that right? Uh, yes, for now. And we're hoping that we will be able to um, uh, morph into other areas such as uh, Rensselaer County, really make it a capital region initiative and program. Uh, but we wanted to start I, I tend to be a little conservative, Melissa, and we wanted to start, uh, there's so much involved in this project, so much back um, involvement that behind the scenes that we really wanted to make sure that we had a, a super grasp on um, the entire project before we launched into um, any other areas at this time. That's... But we're hoping, we're hoping soon. 
That sounds like a wise strategy. So if someone is listening to this and they're thinking, gosh, I have a problem that I'd like some advice on, how do they get in touch with this legal hand? How does this hand reach out to them? Right. Uh, well, there are a number of ways. And um, the, the beauty of this program is, is that there isn't just one way. Um, there's telephone or text, there's email, there's chat. Um, I don't know um, if, if this is something that I could um, just tell you verbally or yes because people are listening and that way they'll hear it and i also will do a write-up in the paper where i'll include that information okay all right and that was really my question uh so for telephone or text 518-400-5544 and to email schenectady albany help I know that's quite a um, quite a mouthful. <laughs> At legalhand.org. Perfect. So how many volunteers do you have that have been trained to do this at this point now that you're just starting out? We currently have 18 volunteers who have been trained, um, and they're from both the Albany area and Schenectady, and they're very diverse. We have some college students who, as you can imagine, are very savvy um, in, in terms of technology. We have retirees, and we have individuals who um, are in between, who are still fully employed. So that is nice. You have an age spectrum as well as a geographic <laughs> diversity. Yeah. So what does their training involve? How do they get to be able to offer help? What sort of training do they go through? Okay. Well, uh, they must be 18 years or older. Um, they um, will attend a volunteer information session there is an application and acceptance uh, process. However, the, the, the bar is not that high because uh, for a couple of reasons, just as we don't want to provide barriers for our visitors, we don't want to provide barriers for individuals who want to help um, members of their community. Um, there's a volunteer orientation and then the volunteer training. And the training itself, we started with 18, we ended with 18. Oh, so, wow, that's quite a record. <laughs> so people can get through this, but I'm not going to say that it's, you know, just, just a few hours. So I'll tell you what the training is. It's three weeks of training for approximately three hours per week. And the issue areas are housing, immigration, family law, public benefits, domestic violence, um, just to name actually most of them, then uh, volunteers would attend five two-hour live simulations, and that will help them to both practice and learn uh, the virtual platform that's involved. Um, volunteers need to commit to a minimum of three hours per week to volunteer, and that's the length of a shift, uh, for a minimum of six months, uh, speak fluent English, um, and the ability to speak a, a second language is desired and would be wonderful, but not a requirement. Um, they must be computer literate 
and have a desire, and I think this is extremely important, a desire to help members of the community resolve their problems. Again, I think I had in our earlier um, communications had talked about this neighbor to neighbor assistance, and that's truly what it is. Yes, I loved that phrase. In fact, I wrote it down. You, you had written me the legal hand model furthers the contribution that non-lawyers can make to expand access to justice through a neighbor helping neighbor model. And if you could just, because we're such a litigious society, and sure. there's so much... Um, conflict that people are set up for when when they hire a lawyer. Just if you could explain a little about this idea of um, instead having a neighbor helping neighbor model. How does how does that unfold? Well, this is really um, an access to um, justice initiative. And uh, for me, my um, view of, of access to justice is really that people are provided information and they're treated fairly. And that's really what anyone wants. And I think uh, individuals who don't have information about whatever their issue is are then almost forced into court or, or not. And maybe they lose their public benefits or maybe they lose their apartment or maybe they go to court and they're ill-prepared and they lose. So um, while we do not uh, provide um, legal representation. We do provide legal information, and that's really important. And that's one of the things that one of the sections of the training for volunteers um, that's critical. We have to make sure that we we know that line, that we stay in our lane. We are not providing representation. We are providing information um, as well as resources, because often when you're speaking with someone they don't always have just one issue that they are concerned about. So the ability to be able to also make a referral to a community-based organization um, for for something could be um, Social Security office, could be you know to to get food stamps, could be any number of things um, is is really, I think these two things go hand in hand, information and and resources. And so really, we're trying to help individuals who have not just one issue, but through discussion with the, uh, the volunteer, um, they find that the visitor has perhaps multiple issues. So we have a quite a robust, um, to say the least, um, database called the Legal Hand Helper that is um, constantly viewed by the Legal Hand, um, the center attorney, to make sure that it's up to date because things change in a minute, as you know, even the laws, um, and that the resources are, are up to date. So it's a live, it really is a living sort of database uh, that is always being reviewed and then reviewed again to make sure that the volunteers are giving the most up-to-date and accurate information to the visitors. So is the database ex exclusively for the volunteers or do the visitors have access to it too? The visitors do not have access to it other than through the volunteer. So typically, and I know you've only been at this since last Monday, but typically, <laughs> yeah, typically would a visitor have this initial session and then 
check back in? I mean, is it an ongoing sort of relationship or is it sort of a one time? Here's what you need to empower yourself to to have the information to figure out what you need. I'm so glad you asked that, Melissa, because um, this really aligns with my philosophy. It's never a one and done uh, not with the agency that I run, certainly not with legal hand, probably. And I'm only going by and, and I'm assuming we'll talk about how legal hand got started, but we are not the only um, legal hand call in center. Um, and so the the average, my understanding is the average amount of time that a, a volunteer may spend with a visitor, maybe half an hour could be an hour. Um, but sometimes the volunteer needs to gather more information themselves. And so then they would uh, contact the visitor again. A visitor can call or text or chat as many times as they wish. Uh, Again, and I think some of that points to the fact that uh, not all visitors have one issue. So they're certainly free to come back with that issue. They're free to come back with other issues. Um, there are times when their issue may really require the assistance of an attorney, in which case um, a referral would be made to um, either legal aid or another legal services organization. If the visitor does not um, uh, is not able to um, line up with the eligibility requirements, the financial eligibility requirements, they would be referred to one of the local bar associations. So we're not leaving anybody behind. Um, Again, it's not a one and done. So what are the eligibility requirements? What, what it has to do with income? It, It does have to do with income. Um, and perhaps, depending on the, the sort of case, I mentioned that um, divorce is not one of the issues that, that we handle. Um, and really, those requirements, I don't have knowledge of those. So if an individual um, uh, calls legal aid, for example, and does not meet the financial eligibility requirements, um, uh, they would have that information and they would be able to provide that that guidance legally. Okay. So then with this visitor calling the volunteer, are they paired in the sense that the visitor gets the same volunteer each time? Or is it just, you know, whoever happens to be on call at that shift? Is there like a relationship that develops between those two? Or is it trying to use as many different people as are available at the time? Well, because as I mentioned that um, volunteers each have a three-hour shift and some I think probably have agreed to um, take on more than one three-hour shift, there are notes that are put in the um, in the database that the volunteer uses. So really any of the volunteers can assist because they have the information um, and would be able to jump in and, and continue working with that um, with that visitor and, and the volunteer. Um, but that said, I, I really need to ensure your listeners and your readers and, and you, Melissa, that the information that is gathered from the volunteer is only pertinent to the issue. Um, so we're not sharing information. We're not asking for personal information because everyone, there's no um, income eligibility requirement to use legal hand, the call-in center. Um, And so 
we don't need that information uh, for any reason. I see. Uh, that's good to know. I think that's really important. <laughs> so people realize that. Yes. And people's privacy is is utmost um, to this to this project. Okay, so let's talk about the genesis of this. But I also think, just from the little I know of you, it's going to be intertwined with who you are. <laughs> so we should talk about that, too. I see that you've been with the Center for Community Justice for 20 years, which is a huge commitment. And also that you started um, in the CASA program, the Court Appointed Special Advocates. So just could you kind of tell us about your journey and then we'll end up with how I assuming you're essential to the, you know, the local legal hand program. Just yes, thank you so much. Um, and 20 years. I don't know how much time do you have, Melissa? But um, maybe <laughs> maybe we need to do lunch to continue. Yeah. Um, but but I'll I'll uh, try not to uh, go on and on. But um, I had heard about the CASA program when I was living in Pennsylvania and and moved to New York, um, and then just happened to see an ad looking for volunteers. Um, and so I volunteered for the CASA program uh, in 1998 was when I started. Um, and that's, as you mentioned, the court appointed special advocates program where volunteers and this, and you're right, I'll circle back to um, how I got involved in legal hand. Um, volunteers will advocate for children who have an abuse and or neglect matter in family court. So that was 1998. In 2001, I was offered a very small part-time position with the CASA program. I took it. And as I say, the rest is history. So I became the uh, director of CASA of the Capital Region, which was uh, Schenectady, Rensselaer County, and Albany counties. I'm um, going to interrupt you here just yep. to unpack for people that aren't that familiar with CASA. If you could just kind of put us on the ground floor and give us an example of like one person you might have helped, the kind of thing an advocate does, because most of us don't go to family court <laughs> unless we're suddenly there, you know? Um, exactly. Uh, well, these are, oh boy, these are abuse and neglect matters. And the vast majority of the children are in um, foster care. Um, and so they really need a voice. Um, and while they have a number of other service providers, they even have their own attorney assigned to them. All children have an attorney uh, in this situation. Um, but CASA volunteers have the time to really look into the case, maybe to flush out resources. Again, I think you're seeing maybe a connection that I, I have with Legal Hand, flushing out resources, bringing information to the family court judge um, in the form of a formal court report. We do not make recommendations just as we don't provide legal advice, uh, legal information, um, excuse me, legal advice in legal hand. Um, but so the judge will take the information from the CASA volunteer and often um, will comment on how helpful that information has been. And the whole point of CASA is we're looking for permanency for all children, a safe and permanent home, all children, but those particularly the ones that we work with who are in foster care. And that means information. Um, and so 
We start off with the the, uh, CASA program with a court order from the family court judge, which allows us to obtain information. Of course, we get releases as well, um, but we are able to get information from medical providers from the school. How's a child doing in school? Um, I I had a situation um, many years ago where um, a teacher had said to me uh, when I was volunteering, Thank God somebody asked me about this young man, because I can tell you, he comes into class every morning. He was about middle school age, puts his head down on his desk. He's crying. Um, And no one was asking, how is this child doing in school? So, of course, we were able to provide that information to the judge. Often it means that um, mental health services would be ordered. Um, the judge can order many things, and that's just one of them that's critical. And, I, and I'm thinking about even now with the pandemic, how many of our young people could really benefit from mental health services? So the judge has full discretion as to whether or not he or she wants to order um, a court-appointed special advocate to be involved in a case. People often ask me, well, well, how do they know? How do they decide? There is no real answer. We don't know. I think often the judge says, you know, this case has been in family court for too long. I need more information. I'm just not getting the information that I need to be able to make a decision about permanency for the child. That's a great description. And I see a common thread with legal hand. It's all about information. It's all about having knowledge of what a situation is that might not be immediately in front of you. So tell us about um, the Center for Community Justice and how you became intertwined with that. Uh, The Center for Community Justice actually started with a bail program in 1973. So That said, we might be out of business now, Um, but um, if if you um, think about what was going on in the 70s, that this agency needed to start with a bail program, well, it was the Vietnam War. And so the bail fund started to help bail individuals out who were, had an issue with the war and were protesting um, to bail them out of jail. And from there, so from 1973 until now, this agency has primarily um, programs that involve alternative to incarceration. We have a robust community service program where we receive referrals from uh, the various courts, restitution. Um, We have the Schenectady County um, Reentry Program, which is, I say it's recognized, but it's recognized and funded by Division of Criminal Justice Services. We are one of 20 in the state of New York that provides reentry services. Um, And we begin that process pre-release before an individual even comes out of state prison. Um, And there are anywhere between, depending on the year, between 250 and 350 individuals being released from state prison in Schenectady each year. Uh, We handle about 150. Um, And again, and I'm I'm making that connection, um, when we help individuals here in our reentry program, 
our door is always open. They can always come back and they often do. And actually we appreciate some of them a, a check-in with, hey, you know, I, I got that job and I'm doing really well. Those are my best days when I hear that. Well, that would be a good day because I, I remember going, not in your county, to the Albany County Jail to do an interview and the man with his bag full of stuff having been released, <laughs> you know, on the payphone, just trying to find somebody that could even come pick him up. So it just seems like such an important thing when you're finished with your time to have some place to go and something to do with your life. What an important bridge to make. Um, Gosh, do you have, do you keep any kind of data or figures on, um, out of those people that you are serving with a reentry? How many of them you know, find a way to become productive? I'm going to tell you that I I really believe it is the majority. Um, I I did not gather that data from my reentry manager, um, but I I can tell you that our role with reentry is, of course, we don't want individuals to recidivate. and, And how does that happen? They receive services and information. Um, We have uh, an an employment program here. Um, We provide uh, bus passes. We provide work clothing. Um, uh, Pretty pretty robust um, case management services for individuals. Spend a lot of time with them. Um, If I could just quickly um, talk about an individual who got out of prison. This was when COVID had really just blown up, not that it's a lot better now, but when people didn't really know what to do and organizations were closing um, and their their staff were working from home, um, I had an individual come in um, who had just spent 17 years in prison, didn't know how to operate a cell phone, had never had a cell phone, um, never mind a computer, And he had gone to the um, Department of Social Services to try to get some public benefits. Okay, but there are things that you need to do if you want to continue to receive public benefits, um, such as look for work. So he had, I think he said he had to have 20 um, organizations or or job uh, applications that he had to fill out. And not only were a lot of the stores, restaurants, organizations closed because of COVID. Um, he didn't have a phone. He didn't have any access to even being able to apply for a job. And now, as you can probably guess, and not just because of COVID, a lot of people will go on Indeed or they'll submit their application, say to Home Depot online. Um, he did not have that. Uh, nor did he have the information or the knowledge as to how to do it. So he was in big trouble. He was ready to be violated. And so I did make a phone call to his uh, caseworker at social services, explain the situation. We purchased a cell phone for him that he could um, access and submit um, applications, job applications. And he was he was fine. We were also able to make a, refer- a couple of referrals for him. But that's what I mean. Access is everything, um, and that really is justice. Um, having information, having the ability to 
um, do what you need to do uh, so that you're not violated and, and put back in state prison. Uh, when he got out of prison, it must have been, I can only imagine, like coming out into the twilight zone. Here we are with COVID, not being able to um, access any resources. It was just just amazing. Yeah. And the point you make about technology, if you're in prison and our whole lives now, not just applying for jobs, but everything we do run through the Internet. And if you just have no knowledge of that, you would be imprisoned in a different way. You would just be outside of how life functions. Right. That's a that's a great story. Well, another thing on your website that just fascinated me um, was it said that the Center for Community Justice is guided by principles of restorative justice. And if you could just fill us in uh, about about that, I think it would be good. Okay. Well, restorative justice um, is, is really about repairing harm. Um, we have a um, small program here called the Community Accountability Board in which uh, volunteers... Um, excuse me, individuals who have committed a low-level crime, uh, maybe it's petty larceny, um, maybe it's trespassing, things that legally, not what I think is low-level, but what the law thinks is low-level crime, um, might be referred to this Community Accountability Board, which is made up of um, uh, community volunteers from the neighborhood um, who will sit down and listen to the, um, I'll say the offender's story, um, and, and talk about what kind of harm has been committed, not just to maybe whoever the victim was, but often it's to the, the community as well. For example, and I was trained in Albany, um, and so I did a little bit of volunteering there. We had um, an individual come in and the victims are, are invited, but don't often come. And sometimes they do. But this particular um, offender stole a young woman's cell phone. And OK, maybe not such a big deal. Slap on the wrist. But um, the young woman came in and she talked about her dad suffering from um, cancer. This was her and his lifeline. So if he needed something, he would call her. And if she didn't have her cell phone, she couldn't answer his call. So the question is, who was harmed? Often you hear from these individuals who committed this low-level offense well, nobody, uh, you know, just me. Here I am. I was I was arrested. Now I have to sit in front of this this board. Now, think about this. Think about the stress of this young woman. Think about and the fear that if her dad needed something, he wouldn't be able to call her. Um, of course, she would have gotten another cell phone. And I'm sure that she did. But it's recognizing that it's not just about you. It's about maybe who you victimize. It could be um, uh, somebody spray painting, um, which I see a lot of, unfortunately, a building. Well, who does that harm? Nobody. I'm just, um, you know, I'm just spray painting the building uh, because um, I'm artistic. <laughs> but what about the people who have to look at that? And, and so we've had individuals do that 
And this, this board of community volunteers has assigned them to do perhaps a research on what does blight do to a neighborhood? Um, and so there's a task involved. There's also community service involved. Maybe it's 10 hours. Um, generally no more than that. The, the idea is not for it to be punitive. The idea is that it be restorative. Restore the individual who committed the, the offense, restore the victim, and restore the neighborhood. Um, and so then once those tasks are completed, and they're given a certain amount of time to, to complete them, they come back and they would meet with the same um, community volunteers that they first met with, perhaps read their research paper, discuss their community service, and then if, if it's all completed successfully, the individual would go back to court and their record would be wiped clean. It's really quite an amazing program, really is. You are a marvelous storyteller. These are just great narratives. And at the center of each one is the power of volunteers and the ability to change. Yes. Yeah. Wow. Well, our time has just flown by. Do you have any closing thoughts for people? Well, I, I do. I, I hope that, um, that the community will recognize that Legal Hand, the call-in center, is yet another valuable resource for individuals. We want to keep people out of court, not in court. And not every matter belongs in court. Um, and again, access to justice means information. It means a willing ear. It means um, very patient, thoughtful, and kind uh, volunteers who are helping the visitor. Often people just want someone to listen and understand. Um, and sometimes that's really all that they're looking for. Uh, we may not have all the answers for them, but certainly we're giving them the time that they need to talk about what their issues are. Um, and this is a program that um, I think is on the fast track to uh, spreading throughout New York State. And I think that's the goal of the founder, um, who is um, the, um, her name is Helene Barnett. And she is, she's quite an amazing lady. Um, she is Legal Hands founder and president. And this whole initiative with Legal Hand um, started in 2015, and it came from the New York State Permanent Commission on Access to Justice. So uh, I think this will end up becoming a national program. And um, I have the utmost respect for Ms. Barnett and her fantastic team. Uh, otherwise, we would not we would not have this program. And I'm so honored that they chose us to to go forward with this. And, and I will just say one last thing, if I can, I, I was trying to, and I think you got it, make the connections. We have a long history of working with um, volunteers and training volunteers for a variety of our programs with the community accountability board, with our reentry program. We have employers who volunteer for us um, through legal hand. Um, legal hand gives people the opportunity to help and be helped. And I think that's critical. And to me, that's justice. 